This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. Guys, we have a, I'm going to say this is a humorous message, at the same time, a very serious message. Don't you love combo packages like that? There is a, there's potentially a lot of laughter in this because it does hit close to home. It is a very unique sort of slice of life that we oftentimes don't poke at and we don't see, but can be very significant. You see, I am at a juncture in my life at the age of 52 and a half that is causing me to feel old when, in certain regards, even though I refuse to declare myself old in other regards. My thinking is older than the generation that is emerging. And it creates unique tension points in my soul that are very, very important for me to address. It's good. But it's not an enjoyable process for many of us that are aging to age. And when any of us think of being older, we want to age well. There's none of us that are like, you know, I'd like to age poorly. I don't know that I've ever heard someone say that. We want to age well. We want to do this thing well the entire distance of our life. And so some of the things I'm going to bring up directly uh, are a part of that. But the other side of it is we are in a generation, in a culture which is becoming more and more depraved and degenerate with seemingly every passing day. How do we respond to that? And there is an incorrect response to a decaying culture. You can have a response to a decaying culture and have it be the wrong one, even though you mean well. And that's another part of this, is we're dealing with certain dimensions, and I'm dealing with certain dimensions in my own life that God is pressing. I'm going through a transformative process in my life. It sounds sort of scary for you students that are just arriving today to find out that Eric is being transformed right now. It's like, whoa, are we going to get the same Eric? Yes, you're going to get the same Eric, hopefully a souped up upgraded version. In other words, I'm not interested in downgrading. I'm interested in upgrading. But God is doing a deeper work. It's hard for me to even put words to it yet, but I'm sure those words are going to come out in the upcoming weeks where I feel like he is more specific in his change points in me. Like he's, he's gotten to these points where it's just like, whoa, haven't thought about that before. And I appreciate that. I really do. I'm welcoming to this work within me. But you have to be careful when you're standing around Eric, when God's doing this work in me, then I have a tendency to share all of the fun with you. All right, guys, uh, the muddy paws of Brumus. Isn't this fun? Don't you guys like the message already? When there's a dog in the, uh, in the picture, uh, some of you are just warmed to it already. Some of you don't like dogs, and I'm concerned about you. <laughs> so instead of, the title is The Muddy Paws of Brumus, but I'm going to start with something different, The Muddy Paws of Bucky. Now, we have two dogs. We have a little dog, a uh, yippy dog named Jackie, 
very cute. He's a Morky Poo, uh, which uh, is a combination of Yorkie, Mork, and Maltese, Yorkie and Maltese, and then you stick in a little uh, Poo, the Poodle. Uh, and he's adorable, but that's, this isn't his muddy paws. Then we have Bucky, who's a puggle and who's pug-beagle mix. He has an underbite that looks a little bulldogish, uh, very cute. Uh, but we have, we're in sort of a transitionary season in our life where we, we're at our, one of our houses we've left so that we could sell it, and yet we haven't been able to move into our new house yet. I don't know if any of you have ever gone through that awkward stage. And so we're in this rental house for a couple months, and the problem, I mean, praise God for the rental house. We're very excited that we have it. It was a dirt backyard, which is not that big of a deal. Of course, if you don't have dogs, it's not that big of a deal. If you have dogs, okay, it's not that big of a deal as long as it doesn't rain. Well, if any of you have studied the weather in Colorado lately, it has been rain, 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 and more rain, which means mud. And the muddy paws of Bucky have been a very real part of our life. Even on the table, I saw a little trail of mud paws going over the table. It's like, oh, buddy, when we were gone, I think you gave yourself away. Here's a couple pictures of Bucky. I thought you guys would appreciate. <laughs> so that has nothing to do with my message, but I figured I would throw it in anyways. For all the dog lovers, you know, if you're going to stick a dog in a, in, a, in a message, you at least need to show a dog picture, right? So Brumus. You may not know who Brumus is. It's a funny name for a dog, uh, but Brumus is actually rather famous, but not in our generation, in a previous generation. And he was a famous Newfoundland, a big, huge, uh, hairy thing. And so there's a, a quick picture of Brumus. I'm not going to linger on it too long, lest you try and figure out who, wh what dog this was. Uh, so I'm going to say this. I'm going to not get into the story of Brumus right away to sort of bait you, just in case you were thinking of drifting off. You never know when I'm going to bring up the story of Brumus, right? So I'm going to lay some foundation points first. There's an odd benefit of Brumus. And that is that Brumus is going to drive something to the surface. And I'm going to call that something a religious spirit. I'm not a fan of the religious spirit. I don't know if any of you have ever been around the religious spirit. Of course, some of you are like, I have no idea what a religious spirit is. I'm going to attempt to describe what it is, but it is very unfriendly. The Pharisees lugged around what we could call a religious spirit. A religious spirit ultimately crucifies Jesus. And so it's not something that we want in our midst. However, if you lean conservative, you have an extra sensitivity. It's like almost like a clinginess to a religious spirit. It is bizarre. And the enemy knows it. It's sort of like a magnetic pull that we want to be right with God. We want to do this right. We study the word and we're like, okay, give me the rules. And we want then to just live spotless and without any blemish, which is all a good desire, but we have a tendency to try and do it in our own strength. So a religious spirit is the opposite of what God is wanting to cultivate in us, which is his Holy Spirit. They're not the same. I know we can mix them up a lot, but they're not the same. And the one benefit, well, I'm going to say one of the benefits of Brumus is that he drives this religious spirit to the surface. So the religious spirit, here is just a simple elementary school level understanding of it. The religious spirit elevates the rule above the relationship. 
So when you get it figured out of what is important and what is moral and what is right, that you can press that in your life and with others around your life to the point where you quash them or you step on them or you actually injure people around you by holding up this virtue or this rule or this standard. It's really hard. If any of you have ever struggled with this in your life, parenting is one of the number one spots that this can come out. Because as a parent, you know how you want your kids to behave, and you, you know what they should be doing with your life, their life, and so you can easily begin to hold an ideal, a rule, a standard up, and injure them in the process of trying to get them to live out the standard. But isn't that your job as a parent, is what we always think as parents. Like, well, that's just what I'm supposed to do, isn't it? And that's part of why I'm bringing this up, is that religious spirit can hide behind drapes and act very spiritual a lot of the time. And I feel like right now, one of the big things that is happening in the church of Jesus Christ is God is wanting to expose this and drive it out of our midst. And there's nothing quite like Jesus showing up uh, in Israel to drive those Pharisees crazy. You just think about it. When Jesus shows up, there are two sides of the ledger. You have the conservative side, the Pharisees, who really were upset. They're plotting to kill him. And you have this other side, which is more the loosey-goosey side, which we would typically term the liberals. They're the Sadducees. And guess what? They wanted him dead too. You see, Jesus doesn't play to either side. He's Jesus. And yet, all of us are oftentimes played to either side, which is what I'm bringing up today. I don't want you to be played to either side. I want you to follow Jesus. So the religious spirit elevates the rule above the relationship. Eric Ludi and the religious spirit. I hate even sticking a line like that up on the screen to make you think that I have anything to do with the religious spirit. Not me. Everything about my desire for this environment is that when you enter this environment, you are not uh, suffering under the religious spirit. I don't want to be a leader, and none of us as leaders want to create such an atmosphere where you have that pungent odor of religiosity. I want you to fall in love with Jesus when you're here. I want you to be set free from the bondage of law to Walk and run the race that has been set before you, loving Jesus with joy and with peace. And yet, when you are creating an environment, it is so easy to accidentally slip into territory that actually can damage those around you. It's not easy being a leader, just like I could say it's not easy being a parent. It's not easy knowing always how to implement the truth of Jesus into this realm where it breeds life instead of a damper pedal or a downward pressure of oppression. So Eric Ludi and the religious spirit. Unfortunately, my kids know both of these stories. Uh, so the sidewalk shove. Boy, this is, this is embarrassing. Okay, so we're in a busy area. It might have been Disneyland. I'm not exactly sure where it was. Maybe this should be a lesson to stay away from Disneyland in the first place, right? I'm sure it was Disneyland that caused me to do it. But this group is trying to get down the sidewalk, and my family is like blocking the way. And 
so my desire as a Christian is to always consider those around me, right? Like these people are coming through, and if it was me, I would move out of the way. But it's not just me. It's me and this horde. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever seen like one of these large families like the Ludies, six kids, you know, two dogs? You know, we're just sort of, we go on a walk together around the neighborhood. My, my kids will actually say, maybe we should split up. Because it makes a statement when you get this huge, and then people start looking out their windows like, what is that? <laughs> and so I have this pile of people, right, that is there, and they represent me. And what is my rule? My rule is when someone needs to get by on the sidewalk, I will move out of the way. It's a good rule. You have to admit, every single person in here has to acknowledge that's a good rule. But when you put the rule above your relationships, what do you do? I shoved my family <laughs> off the sidewalk to clear the way for the, for the other people that I don't know. Okay, now some of you can say, that is very noble, Eric, and I just really appreciate you sharing that story. It's such an inspiration to me. I want to make sure that you see the correction in there, that if I devalue my family to uphold a rule, I'm actually not functioning in the spirit of Christ. That it's my job to not harm my family to just look good to someone else. But there is a vulnerability in us to do that. And that's what I'm trying to drive to the surface. Okay, classic second illustration. My kids unfortunately know what this is too. It'd be nice if I could give an illustration. My kids are like, I don't remember that at all. Unfortunately, they, they do. And I've shared this one at the church, so I'm sort of warmed up for this one. But it's the hotel shh. Okay, so for whatever reason, when we're traveling across the country, we always choose to arrive at a hotel at like midnight or one. We can't just show up at six, like, and move our horde through the hallways and hide away in the hotel rooms and be quiet like normal people. Instead, we show up at 12 or one and we're just clattering around and we're making noise. And I have a rule. Okay, it's a personal rule, and that is that when I'm walking through a hotel late at night, I do it quietly. I show honor and respect to that person snoring on the other side of the door, though I don't know who they are, and though the room could actually be empty, I don't know, but I'm going to show respect for that empty room. And as I make my way around, even as, have you ever tried to close a hotel door softly? It has that clang to it, it is really hard, but I will still try. And so you close it, and it's like, okay, there I go. And then it goes, kink, kink. It's like, oh. So my whole family feels like a kink, 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 as they're making their way down the hallway. We have two different, uh, you know, carts, you know, those, uh, those uh, luggage carts. And then one, of course, has like a squeaky wheel on. It's like, going down, the, and I'm shh. And... The whole while I am upset, I have my face on, my dad's face is like, shh, shh. And, okay, let's get it out on the table right now, just in case you can't see it. If I, because of my rule, am going to be sensitive to all these other people and insensitive to my family and not show the love of Jesus to my family, something is wrong in that picture. What is wrong? I am hosting something. I'm going to call it the religious spirit. I am allowing the enemy to play me as the nice guy to actually be mean to the very people I'm called to minister to. 
That doesn't make any sense. And yet we are vulnerable to doing it and family is the first zone in which it usually emerges. Church is the next. And I can't tell you how many of you in here, I could only probably guess, have actually been injured in the church because the church will elevate a behavior, a something, whether it's the hallway behavior or the sidewalk behavior, their doctrine above the people. And they will shove and they will shush in a way that actually injures the church instead of promotes Jesus to the church. This ought not to be, and yet many of us, especially those of us that lean conservative, have actually encountered this dynamic in a shocking way, and it has led to great injury in our lives and in our generation. So I'm going to now go to the opposite end of the spectrum, because the religious spirit is one of the things that Brumus is going to bring out. You guys don't even really know who Brumus is, but you have this idea that it's a dog and that it's a big black Newfoundland. And you would be correct, even though that's about all you know. The opposite side from the religious spirit is something we could call the rebellious spirit. And it's interesting because even though we're in a conservative environment right now, there's some of you that don't struggle with the religious spirit. You struggle with something different. And the same is true with our culture. We have those that are more the religious I mean, I'm even talking politically. It sounds funny to call anything in politics religious. And then we have the rebellious, the ones that are always sort of pressing things, moving them forward. Why? Because to move them forward would really get those religious folk upset. And that's their entire motivation. Why are we going to do it this way? It's because it hasn't been done this way and they don't really want to go this way. They're stuck in the mud. We're going to move them out of the mud. It's, it's funny, I've, I've watched it even at Ellerslie. If you give a rule at Ellerslie, the, there's an instinct in some of you, the first instinct you have is, I must break that rule. <laughs> now, I am the exact opposite, which is why I don't have a tremendous amount of sensitivity to the rebellious spirit, right? I am a rule keeper. If you tell me not to do something, I won't do it. And I mean, I could give you illustration after illustration in my life where it's just like, if I'm asked to do this by my superiors, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm a rule keeper, right? Great quality. Yeah, until you start shoving people off of sidewalks and shoving people in hotels. In other words, it has a quality that is beneficial, but so does the rebellious spirit. You could brag about that and say, at least they're innovative. At least they're willing to try new things. At least they're willing to break out of old tradition. Yeah, it's a good quality, you're right. But when we, I remember we had some rule. We had, we had to be very watchful in creating any rules here at Ellerslie because some of you, you know, like I said, it's like, must break the rule. So we had this funny rule back in the day. We had a collection of silverware out in the main uh, room, uh, like the, the lobby area, and there was some kind of rule. I don't know if it was a thing, like a placard on the counter, but it's like, if you take a, sil a piece of silverware to your room, make sure you remove it. Or you, you, you remove it. <laughs> it did not say that. Make sure you uh, return it. But I don't even think it said that. I think it said something like, do not take silverware uh, to your room. I think that's more of what it said. Now, why we had to put that announcement on the counter, I'm not exactly sure, because the first thing that happened is people are like, I must break that rule. <laughs> 
So we had a confession time here at Ellers. I remember one guy got up and was like, I just need to make it right. Uh, I'm not sure who to say I'm sorry to, but there's someone out there that I know I need to. Maybe it's you, Eric. And they look at me. I'm like, oh, okay. And they go, I, I took a, a fork <laughs> to my room. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I forgive you. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think. I didn't even know about the rule, right? Uh, and uh, then someone else raised their hand and came up. It's like, I, I did too. <laughs> And then a third person came up and was confessing, taking a spoon, and then someone else, and it's like, okay, guys, we're going to do a bulk confession here. <laughs> Anyone who needs to get their conscience clear for taking a piece of silverware from the lobby to their room, why don't you raise your hand and then we'll pray. Uh, <laughs> hands all over the place. I could not believe it. The levels of, uh, of rebellion uh, in the ranks of Ellerslie students. But what this does is it's oftentimes a response to a religious spirit. So it depends on how you are wired of if you are more attracted and magnetically pulled to the religious or you are more magnetically pulled to the rebellious. However, I'm just going to get it out of the table and say both will kill you and both will kill the church. See, the enemy is the one playing us and we don't want to host either. So the rebellious spirit, here's a simple elementary school definition, elevating individualism above intimacy. When we say, this is the way I want to do it, you don't tell me how I am defined. This is the way I want to exert myself. And the big I in your life is capital. It's not a lowercase I, it's a capital I. It's about you. And rebellion must exert that. It doesn't submit and become a lowercase i. It must remain capital. And that will destroy every environment. It'll destroy a family. It'll destroy a church. And it will destroy you. The church of Jesus Christ, where do we go from here? So think about this. We are in a generation which is flaunting rebellion against God. The rebellious spirit is currently the spirit of the age. And what is it doing? It is revealing the religious spirit in the church. I'm saying this is actually somewhat of a strange benefit. In other words, in this time period in which we live, this dynamic in us that has controlled the conservative realm in a bad way, in an unhealthy way, is actually being driven to the surface because it cannot stand rebellion any more than rebellion can stand the religious spirit. And so... If I was going to give us any type of advice in this time, I'd say, let's take advantage of this. I mean, I'm not happy with the rebellion that is taking place in our world against God, where the, the culture in which we live is thumbing their nose at God. And I wouldn't encourage any of you to join ranks with that. But what it's doing in the church is we find ourselves wanting to shove people off of sidewalks and shh, people going down the hotel hallways. There's some of you that understand what I mean, that you have hosted a great anger, a great desire to see those rebellious people destroyed. And I'm just going to say right now, that is not Jesus Christ. That is not what the Spirit of God is working in you. That is a bait from the enemy. And that is precisely why in this time we are actually given clarity potentially as the church to say, let's get that out of our midst. Let's get it out of our lives. Let's get it out of our churches. We don't behave like the world. So 
if we're going to figure out where to go, we need to know what to follow. In the Old Testament, we have the Israelites in the wilderness, and they were led by a cloud. Now, I'm going to extrapolate and at least give something away here, because my whole teaching isn't just on the cloud, but I want to use the cloud as an illustration, that ultimately it's going to be a picture of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit. It's that which leads us. It's that which is our commander-in-chief. It's that which we follow. So the heavenly cloud led the Israelites and supplied them shade in the desert as long as they followed it. And so when the cloud would remain, they would remain. When the cloud would move, they would move. Exodus 13, 21, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. Exodus 40, 37, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. Numbers 9, 21, so it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. So the history of Ellerslie, risking everything to follow the cloud. One of our desires here at Ellerslie is to not remain stagnant. It is a funny phenomenon. This cloud draws out two behaviors in us. One is we don't want to follow the cloud. This is what we call the rebellious spirit. And we don't like where it's taken us. We don't like the fact that it's lingering here a little too long. And so we take it into our own hands and we move forward. That's one. But then there's the opposite side, which I could call the religious side of us, that really likes where it has led us. And we like what we've accomplished here. And we're not in agreement with the fact that it wants us to move forward. It's like, what's wrong with right here? And we get stuck. You could say stuck in the mud, but it could be stuck in the sand. We get stuck instead of desirous to move where it moves. Either way, that cloud is a proving point of what's going on inside of us. The history of, well, let me get back to this. The history of Ellerslie, we have so many moments where our system works, our training system works, yet God will still move us forward. It's like, and I could go through, I've, I've gone through messages in the past. If you listen to my old message called The Doctrine of Change, I go through and I show all these changes that are going to take place in this environment where God is going to pick us up, pack, we pack up our tabernacle, and we move forward. It's like, God, what was wrong with back there? Nothing, but I'm moving you here. And part of that is so important in our spiritual lives that we do not stagnate, but we move in concert and in agreement with God. So the principle of the cloud, I'm going to give two sides to this. One is don't get stuck in the desert sand of a previous powerful work. You know how many denominations right now on earth are the way they are because of a movement of God in their midst 150 years ago? And so why do they do that? Well, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And it's because God did something great, but then when the cloud moved, they didn't move. And what that is going to create is a religious environment. It's hollow of life, even though it does not mean life was not once there. And this is a propensity that we all have. And I don't just mean denominationally, I mean individually. If you were to say, oh, but God was working in such a beautiful way, and this is how he did it. This is what my prayer life was like. This is how I handled my devotions at that season of my life. What you have a tendency to do is want to go back to that. 
I, I understand. I really do. When I'm going through a season of transition like I am now, picking up everything, literally, and moving, and I have muddy paws all over my, you know, my living room because of it, I really want to just go back to a place we were which was stable. I mean, this would have been so much easier if we just hadn't picked this up. That's our propensity. However, everything in God's kingdom is found in following that cloud when it moves. But God, I really like it here. I know. But will you trust me? Where I'm taking you is where I am. You see, he's not back there where you were. He's moving, which is why when you recognize he is the cloud, when the cloud begins to move, I don't care what you have to give up to follow it. Follow it. Because that's where Jesus is going. The other side of the principle of the cloud is don't move from your desert place too hastily. See, some of us don't want to move at all. Some of us are itching to move. We're itching to change things up. We're itching to get out of this season into a new one. Classic illustration is singleness. Need I say more? When you have that ache and that itch inside of you and you're like, God, move the cloud forward and he doesn't move it, what do you do? Do you submit to the cloud and recognize that that cloud knows best for your life? Or do you jump ahead and move at the pace you desire? And I'm just saying, this is, this is the essence of Christianity right here is found in these two pulls away from Jesus, which is just following the cloud. The rule breaker, some of you really like that title. It's like, I love this guy. Who is it? T tell me about the rule breaker. It's scary. It's always scary for a rule keeper like Eric to talk about the rule breaker. I don't want you to think that you can just break rules. You know, they, one of the chief rule breakers in history was Jesus Christ. This guy, what are you doing, Jesus? I, could, I have a pharisaical propensity. I don't know if any of the rest of you would ever acknowledge that in you, but I like things done a certain way. Jesus, what? If he really was the son of God, he wouldn't do that, would he? So I want to learn from the Pharisees instead of rinse and repeat what the Pharisees did. So that one guy, Jesus, that didn't go along with the religious system of his day. In fact, if you were to describe it as going through the New Testament and say, who was the greatest opposition to Jesus? It wasn't the pagans, those that hated God. It was actually those that called themselves the leaders of the church of that time. Isn't that a weird thought? I don't want to get encrusted the way that these people were. I don't want to follow the Pharisees' example. I want to follow Jesus. So let's read through Matthew 12, 1 through 14, and you can smirk uh, if you would like, because Jesus, I think, had a smirk on his face the whole time. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. What? And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? 
Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you, have, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value than is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was, re- and it was restored as whole as the other. So how did the Pharisees respond to this? They've just seen a healing of a withered hand. They have seen the Christ, the one that they have been preaching about, waiting for all these years. They've just seen him demonstrate his power on this earth. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. This is precise. I know it's very easy to look at the Pharisees and say, well, I'm glad I'm not them. However, the same ancient spirit that ruled that church of that age, the religious system of that age, still exists today. Isn't that a weird thought? The demons that were around back then, conning these religious leaders into their thinking, are the same spirits that work against us. The same bait to actually create a rule system, which was all tradition, by the way, that was not based on the cloud. The cloud is moving. Follow him. He is the leader. Not your rules, not your traditions. When he moves, you follow. Follow Jesus when he comes. Principle of the rule breaker. We'll look at this from a couple different angles. Jesus has only contempt for our man-made formulas of righteousness. And we as the church build up formulas for righteousness fairly quickly. We can do that in our homes where we build up a formula for righteousness, and we can easily do it in our gatherings. And it does not mean that there aren't wisdom points to it. There are points of, I mean, it's like that makes total sense why we wouldn't do that. Principle of the rule breaker, following Jesus is higher than following man-derived traditions. Now remember, when I say something like, my rule for myself is if someone needs the space on the sidewalk and I am hogging it up, that I will defer and give it to them. And it's going to be really hard for you to argue biblically that that's not a good position for me to have. However, for me to keep that rule, I end up harming my family in so doing. I end up belittling my family, humiliating my family, hurting my family. I don't think I hurt any of them in trying to shove them off the sidewalk, but If I do that, then you vote on my rule that I have. Which one is greater, my rule or this representation of Jesus unto my family? And this is where Jesus is going to come in and say, he's elevating the person, Jesus, above the rule. Are we? Or are we celebrating the rule above the people? Right now, we see rules of our constitutional republic being hindered, harmed, destroyed, burnt, torn down. And we, as the conservatives, are being baited to hate, to despise, and to revile the very people that we have been called to reach with the gospel. Think about that. Who are the ones in need of Jesus right now? The very ones that are harming our rules. 
And if we end up to preserve our rules, not showing love to them, what have we accomplished? The law fulfiller, isn't that funny? I call him the law breaker and then I call him the law fulfiller. Doesn't that confuse you a little? You see, he breaks the rules that are man-made. He doesn't break God's law. He fulfills God's law, which is his nature. That's, that's what God's law is. It's, an, it's the exemplification, it's the revelation of who God is. And Jesus can't violate that because that's who he is. And that law fulfiller is Jesus. So listen to this. This is an important thing for you to recognize. He wasn't religious, nor was he rebellious. Even though you have to admit he had a smile on his face as he did some of the things he did, he wasn't rebelling against God. He may have been poking in the eye the pharisaical system, but he was never rebellious against God. So he wasn't religious or rebellious. He was and is and always will be something known as love. Listen to what it says, uh, it, Paul says in Romans 13.10 about love. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to be a good rule keeper? Love. That's how we do it. That's what Jesus did. Love triumphed in and through his life. And so in every situation, he loved. And that love would feed his disciples on the Sabbath. That love would heal a withered hand on the Sabbath. It wasn't ruled by the rules. It was ruled by love. And love is free from a religious spirit, and it would never function in rebellion. Love is the very nature of God. The ancient paths, there are some things that never change. So listen to Jeremiah 6, 16, and then uh, chapter 18, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. And then in chapter 18, verse 15, for my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods and they have stumbled from their ways from the ancient paths to walk in by paths, not on a highway. There is a way that God has called us to walk. And what is challenging about this is the word ancient sounds like the opposite of moving forward. It's an ancient path. That is because it's always the same. We all walk the same path to Jesus. There isn't a novel or a unique version for you. It is all humbling ourselves before the living God, repenting and believing upon Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that is our means of salvation. We are all saved by faith. There's not one of us in here that is suddenly going to be saved by works. We're all saved the same way. It's the same path, and it's an ancient one. And the way God has called us to walk down that path, though we have individual courses and we have uniqueness to our life, we all have been called down a common way. The new song. Isn't it funny? We have an ancient path and we have a new song. And these things, this is what I'm going to do, is we're going to combine them because that's what we all need. The new song. There are certain things that should always be improving, changing, and refreshing. It's funny because if you take the religious spirit, it's really going to want to emphasize the ancient paths. And if you take the rebellious spirit, it's going to talk about the new song. Come on, this dead religion that we're hanging out in here, I think it's time we revamp this thing. We had an entire movement in the church, in the conservative side of the church, 
uh, what was that, 10, 15, 20 years ago? I'm getting sort of old, I guess, so I'm not sure my timetables are a little skewed now, but it was called the emergent movement. And what it was is basically saying, this is dead. We're going to try and reinvent it. But it didn't reinvent it according to the ancient path. It reinvented it according to cultural phenomenons of the time. It goes to a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, and it mixed them all together, sort of like, hey, let's revamp the church. And it was called New Christianity. Yeah, okay, guys, we do need a new song. But we need a new song that is found while walking the ancient path. God wants to move us forward. When we stick, you know, in the, get stuck in the sand when the cloud moves forward, we're no longer on the ancient path. And we're no longer singing the new song that the cloud is moving us to sing. Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. New, hadas, which translates as new, or listen to this one, fresh. A fresh song. You know, guys, there's no life here. I, I don't know if you've ever been around a church system that is just dead. It has all their traditions, and they do everything right, and their doctrine is probably sound, but there's no life there. I'm not any more attracted to that than you probably are. However, when you're in the midst of it, you don't quite know what to do about it other than just sort of sing along with the song and bounce on your toes. Because we have a hollowness to Christianity today in many sectors. And then we have other sectors that are trying to mimic life, but they're just as dead. They're just doing things a little more dramatically. But it's man-made noise, equally distasteful. And if any of you have grown up in that, just sort of a hollow system that makes a whole bunch of noise and some streamers and things like that, and then goes home and is just as dead in the private life, it's like, hey, it's no wonder we're struggling as a generation. It's like, what are we supposed to do here? Is, is Christianity even for real? It is. However, we're going to have to pack up the ways that we've always done it and be willing to follow God where he leads us. And we can't justify jumping out ahead nor can we justify staying where we've been. We need to follow him where he leads us. So new or fresh. So I'll just go through a, this is not a small thing in scripture. It's actually a huge thing. Listen to this. There's a whole collection of them. Sing to him a new song, Psalm 33, 3. He has put a new song in my mouth, Psalm 43. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 96, 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 98, 1. I will sing a new song to you, O God, Psalm 144.9. Sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 149.1. Sing to the Lord a new song, Isaiah 42.10. And they sang a new song, Revelation 5.9. I like this one. Listen to this. They sang it as it were a new song before the throne. So even the old lyrics sing it as a new song. Have you ever had that where you suddenly realize that that old hymn is pretty cool? And it says a lot of things that you were wishing you'd known about when you were, but suddenly you see it. So when you sing it, now you mean it. So I'm going to read that last one again. They sang it as it were a new song before the throne. Yeah, like that. Manna. It's sort of like your new song. You don't want to eat old manna because it's rotten. The way God designed it, guess what? Manna is a picture of Jesus. And your relationship with Jesus is meant, you're supposed to go out and collect it daily. God will supply it. The question is, are you going out to get the fresh stuff daily? And in our lives, there is the need for the fresh, always. 
And we cannot justify, say, well, I, I had freshness last year, so I think that should last me a good couple years. That's not the way that manna works. And since Jesus is that essence of the bread come down from heaven that has supplied us, he has given us grace for today. So you're still trying to live on yesterday's grace, but you need today's grace. So you need to actually go out and collect today's grace. Principle of the new song. There are certain things that should always be improving, changing, and refreshing. Leveling up. So I will, and I said this, it seems like a couple of weeks ago, but I will every now and then in my life, it's happened, I, I'm going to just give a number, even though I don't know that I could prove how many times, but let's say around 10. We're in my Christian growth. I'm going along. God will spike things and it'll be challenging. Then I'll, I'll, I'll hit this point where it's like, okay, God has supplied the grace and it's matching my, the demand of my life and I'm starting to get in the groove. It's like, okay, God, you're good. And then poof, I will hit something. And what I call it is a leveling up where God is calling me to something higher. But the first thing I need to feel is poof, this wall where I'm like, uh, God, I don't. And the first thing I tend to do is look to my own pockets. It's like, okay, God, I have your grace, but I'm guessing I need to now add more of me because what I need to accomplish here is impossible for me. And what's interesting is this was impossible where I was. You know, we could call it shoulder level. And, but God gave me grace for it. So I'm doing the impossible, but I'm doing it in his power. But then he brings me up to the nose level. And I don't have grace for that. I have grace for the shoulder level. So there's this gap. What do you do about that gap? God actually wants you to see the gap and he wants you to respond to that gap in a very specific way, to go to him. Just like Jacob is gonna go to the man of God or God in the midst of the night at Peniel and wrestle until he gets that blessing. Same thing is what leveling up is. You see, if you try and do it in your own strength, you will not get the grace for it. You will never be able to handle that nose level assignment that you have. But what God will do is he will elevate the grace to match your nose level assignment. And then what will he do? After you get the grace for that, you're moving along, getting in the groove, then he's going to go up to head level. It's like, what? God? No, this is the gift of grace in your life. You don't want him to keep you at shoulder level or for some of you, ankle level for the rest of your life. You want to level up. But to level up, you need to follow the cloud. And you need to agree with God. When you follow the cloud, God is always going to give you the grace needed. The new challenge, the new need, the new approach. Uh-oh, guys, we're at the story of Brumus. See, I, some of you had even forgotten that that's what this message was about, right? All right, introducing the story of Brumus. So we have a couple characters in this. We have a guy named J. Edgar Hoover. And at the time of this story, which is in 1960, going into 1961, it was the election, presidential election, uh, John F. Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. John F. Kennedy is going to win that election, and uh, J. Edgar Hoover did not want John F. Kennedy to win that election. Up to this point, he's been the FBI director since 1924, and this is 1960. Unprecedented in governmental service that this guy has been around this long, and he's now getting rather old. Now, I'm not saying 70s old for those of you that are 70. I'm saying in governmental work, that is beyond the age that someone is still supposed to be there. But he is getting special permission from each president before him to remain. And he's a little stodgy, guys. You know, I'm talking about my 52-year-old stodginess creeping in. Just imagine 70. Uh, and so he's a little stodgy. He's a very, very serious man. And he is a rule keeper, 
Okay, this is like your classic conservative right here. I mean, he is a great picture of it. Very stern, very serious. He makes, you know, his office is clean. It runs efficiently, and he is a master organizational uh, guy. I mean, he's is very impressive, you have to admit. Uh-oh, now we have Bobby Kennedy, who's a 35-year-old brother of the president. Now, you don't know the tie between these two yet, but that's, why, that's what the story of Brumus is about. So I'm going to read you a clip from, uh, it's a book called G-Man, Beverly Gage wrote it, and she says this, John F. Kennedy campaigned as the candidate of the future, envisioning the 1960s as a glorious new frontier filled with invention, innovation, imagination, a turning point in history. Hoover was not looking for any new frontiers, though he wanted a president who would extend the politics of the 1950s, a decade when the FBI had achieved so much fame, success, and influence. Can you guys already see the tensions here? See, Hoover's been around a long time. He's not looking for new frontiers. He's not looking for invention and innovation. He likes the way it has been. We don't need to move on. Oh, these Kennedys, patooey. I mean, this is, this is a threat. Kennedy squeaked through with a 49.72% of the popular vote to Nixon's 49.55%, 303 to 219 in the Electoral College. One of the closest elections in presidential history. Many Republicans viewed the results as a case of outright theft, accusing the Kennedy team of manipulating votes in Democratic strongholds such as Texas and Chicago. You guys don't see any of the irony, do you? <laughs> so listen to Fletcher Neville, uh, the columnist and Kennedy insider, when she hears that Kennedy is going to keep Hoover. He's keeping Hoover? Listen to this quote. This is a fun quote. We are off to the new frontiers via the same old trading post. The old and the new are going to run into a head-on collision here. It's actually really delightful. <laughs> Beverly Gage continues, most of his other national security appointments, speaking of John F. Kennedy's appointments for, uh, uh, for his cabinet and places, were bolder, more in line with the vague new frontier themes of youth and progress. Defense Secretary, Secretary Robert McNamara was just 44, famed as the Harvard whiz kid who engineered a financial turnaround at Ford. National Security Advisor George, McGeorge Bundy was younger still. At 34, he had become a dean of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and now at 41, he was to be Kennedy's inside man on foreign policy. And then there was the president's pick for attorney general the youngest and most controversial of them all. After announcing Hoover's reappointment, Kennedy floated the idea of tapping his younger brother Robert, or Bobby, just 35 years old for the position of Hoover's boss. <laughs> Are you guys into this story yet? I don't know if it's been whipped up now. I mean, I'm having to simplify it tremendously. So by reputation, Bobby was potentially the worst of the lot. First, he was the president's brother, an act of nepotism. That means to use your political power to favor a relative is nepotism. So he was the president's brother, an act of nepotism that smacked of royal family arrogance. Second, he was widely known in Washington as the least likable and most pugnacious of the Kennedys, the black prince in Adlai Stevenson's words. By the 1960 presidential election, the memos accumulated in Bobby's bureau file, because the, you know, the FBI has files on everyone, right? Well, they have a file on Bobby Kennedy. Were nothing if not inconsistent, veering wildly from high praise, most cordial, to general condemnation, completely uncooperative. So when Bobby himself visited the director's office, so he's going to come and visit Hoover, on December 14th, 1960, to ask whether or not he should accept appointment as attorney general, 
he must have wondered what was about to ensue. Hoover apparently felt that he had to say yes to the president's brother. I didn't like to tell him that, he later explained, but what could I say? It's a really good question. He wants to, Hoover wants to keep his position, and the president's brother comes to him and says, should I accept the nomination for attorney general? I just think it's a good idea for you, Bobby. Why, why don't you do that? John Kennedy announced his brother's appointment on December 16th, two days after Bobby's meeting with Hoover. Almost immediately, the press began to speculate about how the director might respond to his 35-year-old boss, gently reminding the younger man that the indestructible Mr. Hoover is thus far undefeated in the wars of Washington. So we have some problems, guys. And I know, I know that you may not understand these problems, but you need to understand the times in which we're living. In 1960, the way you dress is everything. In our American culture, the professional level and government especially, and then above all of that, Hoover's government, you dress a very specific way to show professionalism, to show honor. Boy, does he have some good rules uh, in his bureau. So problem number one, guys, the shirt sleeves. You're not going to believe this. So Beverly Gage says, there was first the matter of shirt sleeves. Though Bobby usually showed up to work in a suit and tie, whew, that's good to know. Well, because I was concerned. As the day wore on, he often shed these encumbrances. What? First removing the jacket. What? Then the neckwear. Then loosening his collar and rolling up his cuffs. To Hoover, this was tantamount to reporting to work in pajamas. <laughs> Bureau regulations still required agents to wear dark suits, white shirts, and ties at all times, along with hats, whenever they ventured outside. And now, this 35-year-old punk is coming into the Federal Bureau of Investigation with shirt sleeves rolled up and no necktie and no suit coat? Oh! Yeah, I know. Could you just imagine how hard that would be to handle? Hoover viewed this not merely as a convenient uniform, but as a symbol of professionalism, a sign that they took their jobs seriously. It is ridiculous to have the attorney general walking around the building in his shirt sleeves, he complained to bureau aides. Suppose I had a visitor waiting in my entrance room. How could I have introduced him? It's a serious stuff. Now, to all of you, when you hear my shove off the sidewalk story, it's very easy for you to realize that I shouldn't do it. Because you are not in that moment and you don't understand what it's like to be ruled by the rules that I have. Any more than we look at Hoover in this situation and we can give him any grace. It is totally ridiculous. That's because our standards of dress today are completely different. And so we don't understand the change of generation and generational perspective, but there is a cloud moving and Hoover's not willing to follow it. Let me just put it that way. Problem number two, the rumpus room. Oh, no, guys. Bobby had other bad habits, too. For his permanent office at Justice, he rejected the Attorney General's traditional quarters in favor of a cavernous wood-paneled reception room, enormous, one reporter called, as long as a football field. And in fact, he did play touch football in the office. A Kennedy family diversion now brought indoors. Bobby also liked to play darts, flinging sharp-tipped metal projectiles at a target on the wall, pocking up the fine walnut paneling when he missed. Hoover saw both games as pure desecration, desecration of government property. It's, it'd be fascinating if we stopped right here. If I just said, which way are you leaning? Are you pro-Hoover or pro-Bobby? Now, some of you are like, 
Bobby's a Democrat. <laughs> this dynamic, this dynamic is very real in our lives. It's very real in our generation right now with what is happening in our culture. There are things happening in our culture that are like pockmarks from a darts in the wood paneling of our constitutional republic. And technically, if we were to pause, we'd say it's actually not that big of a deal, but this is the way my granddad had his country. This is the way my grandpa, or his, oh, wait a minute, I should have gone back further. This is the way my great granddad had his country, my granddad had his country, my dad had his country, and this is the way I expect my country to be for my kids. But someone is playing darts with the wood paneling in the attorney general's office. Okay, this is the tension that we have. Problem number three, Bobby's random wanderings. Oh no. Even on his own turf, Hoover was not entirely safe. Bobby liked to wander the halls at justice, including the FBI's offices, popping into various meetings, <laughs> introducing himself personally to even the lowest level clerks. Hoover found that practice outrageous, a violation of accepted hierarchy and an implicit warning that his men would have to be on their toes at all times. Sometimes the attorney general even appeared unannounced in Hoover's personal office. On one occasion, he brought several of his children to visit while Hoover was out and allowed them to rummage through the director's papers. <laughs> Problem number four, the Hoover buzzer. For official exchanges, Bobby made Hoover come to him by a means of a loud, insistent buzzer placed on Hoover's desk. According to one agent, Hoover had been perplexed when he first saw the contraption, a strange object, with wires trailing off onto the carpet. Once a technician explained what it was, Hoover supposedly ordered it ripped out and placed on Gandhi's desk. Helen Gandhi's his secretary. The attorney general insisted that he wanted direct access to Hoover, though, and the device was reinstalled. Okay, a 70-year-old man getting buzzed by a 35-year-old man. And, and Hoover's like the chief of Washington. Everyone bows to Hoover. Well, except for this 35-year-old punk. So can you guys feel the tension in this? Oh, no, guys. Problem number five, Brumus. See, I, I think we've built it up properly to the level where, you know, the whole, you know, the whole message is called the muddy paws of Brumus, right? So you can at least anticipate something here. As a child of wealth, Bobby knew instinctively that power could be exercised not just by imposing rules, but by flouting them. This, at least, was the message delivered by Brumus, a lumbering, slobbering Newfoundland dog. Bobby made a habit of bringing the dog into the office, where Brumus proceeded to mark territory by urinating on the carpets. According to legend, Brumus once deposited a steaming pile near the entrance to Hoover's reception room. Hoover assembled an executive conference to determine what to do about the unnerving situation in which the attorney general was arrogantly flouting the law that forbade animals in federal offices. In the end, though Brumus remained a fixture of the Kennedy Justice Department, a symbol of all that separated it from Hoover's bureau. So here's some pictures of uh, Brumus with, with Kennedy there. Isn't that cute? And I like Brumus. He, he went everywhere with, with Bobby. I mean, look at that. They're in this serious meeting. That's uh, Ted Kennedy and Bobby. They're talking about something important. There's Brumus right in the middle of it. Little, I mean, what he heard, that dog, uh, if he could translate, that would be very fascinating. Two differing views on Brumus. In our life, we could have the same challenges, okay? We have 
a culture that is on meltdown. And many of us would say it feels a little like Bobby Kennedy has taken control of something sacred. I actually understand Hoover really well in this storyline, even though I don't agree with him. Does that make sense? I get it. I understand. I feel like something is being violated in our sacred government, the halls of government. What has happened here? This used to be a place of dignity, of excellence. Instead, it has been given to the dogs, literally. Two differing views on Brumus. Listen to what Beverly Gage says. Where Hoover saw chaos and impudence, others saw a much-needed infusion of energy. More than a change of policy, a sharp change in the mood of the Justice Department, with staid federal attorneys suddenly swept up in the urgency of the new political decade. As much as one can judge so vague a thing, morale has risen. That was actually the statement. Is that it's like, you know, overall, even though this is really strange, people are more excited to come to work today than they were under Hoover. Imagine hearing that if you're Hoover. Muddy paws of, the muddy paws of Brumus. When the youthful invention, innovation, imagination comes roaring into your office, how do you respond? When the cloud moves, here's some questions for us. When the cloud moves, how do you respond? How are you responding when God is wanting to lead you forward in your life? Are you eager? Are you desirous? Or are you desiring somehow, some way to justify why you don't move? How about this one? When the cloud doesn't move, how do you respond? Because all of us could say we have these tensions in both directions. Because there's a waiting season that some of us are in right now, and we really have prayed for a long season for something to happen, and it hasn't? How do you handle that? When the cloud stays and God says, I have you right where I want you, could you bloom where I planted you? God, move us forward. So when we see Hoover and Bobby, we see one man who's stuck in the sand, in the desert sand, unwilling to follow a cloud when it moves, and we see another man who is way ahead of the cloud. You see, one is representative of religion, religious spirit, Hoover, and the other one is the classic picture of rebellion. I mean, he was doing that purposely to this older man. And here's what I'm going to say. It didn't work in their relationship. You see, both of those men had to change if this was going to work. And yet both of them were stuck in their system. Hoover refused to change his, and Bobby hated the religious spirit. I mean, he is the exact opposite of it. He is the classic rebel. And he flouted his position in Hoover's face and created a massive rift in our government because of it. The genes dilemma. Trying to find that balance between old values and new times. This is Ellerslie. Ellerslie is always struggling with moving forward. And we've only been around 14 years, right? You'd think that, I mean, how much can change in 14 years? Well, there's a lot that has happened in 14 years. When we first started, online training didn't exist. I know that sounds strange. 14 years ago? Yeah. You didn't train. You didn't get an education online. You always go to a location. So we are a location. We're a campus location. And it's hard to know how to adjust to that when in your entire lifetime, online education has never existed. But in a strange way, a cloud is moving. And do you follow it or do you just get mad at the cloud? 
When we first started Ellerslie, my desire was to create an environment of excellence. I'm very Hoover-esque in that regard, which is rather scary when you study Hoover. It's like, dear Lord, not like him, right? But I really desire excellence. And so when I went to college, I wore a tie. I actually didn't wear a suit coat, but I wore a tie. And I don't remember what kind of pants I had, but I'm sure they were nice, right? And I dressed for success was the name uh, that we would go by for it. And I succeeded. I did very well as I dressed up for it. So you have to recognize in my life, I have this background, this sort of this personal rule of how I'm going to do things. Now I'm dealing with a group. So we start with saying, hey guys, let's dress nice when we come to class. Okay, so self-imposed, no jeans. I know some of you are staring at my jeans right now going, something seems contradictory. No jeans, so the guys need to wear slacks, which sounds really weird uh, now that I'm saying it out loud, uh, but this did happen. And so the guys are wearing slacks. I don't think the girls are required to wear dresses, but nicer clothing, okay? In other words, everyone is dressing up, so when we come, we're going to be engaged, treating it because we're studying the Word of God. Let's, let's arrive with that, lean in and take it with excellence. And you have to admit, there's some good stuff in what I just said. However, as time is passing, when we started 14 years ago, that actually made sense culturally. Sort of like uh, Hoover having his guys wear suits and hats when they went outside. That made sense culturally. But as the culture changes, it's very interesting to watch how Ellerslie is going to wrestle with this. I remember we actually began to bring up the statement of like, would it be okay to wear jeans? I mean, oh, it's it a very dangerous topic of discussion because you felt like you were somewhat blasphemous uh, when you brought it up because our original starting point had that as a premise, not as the point or the focus of what we were doing, but as a premise of how we create an atmosphere. And what's funny is everywhere, but when I was on stage, I always wore jeans and they're nice jeans. You know, I'm not like wearing these jeans that are like, hanging down to my knees where my underwear is showing off. You know, I'm not wearing those kind. They're nice jeans, right? And yet for us to make that transition, it was partly, I know it sounds strange that clothing could have something to do with a cloud moving, but it does. The perception of clothing actually does shift in a generation. And so what was considered rebellious is no longer considered rebellious. A pastor wearing jeans, I don't know how many years ago, but let's put, you know, 20 on there, 20 years ago, might have been considered like he's not taking his job seriously. He doesn't understand the gravity of what it means to represent the word of God. And yet I could almost guarantee that most of the young people in here could care less if I had slacks or jeans on, on whether you think I'm taking the word of God seriously. Isn't that bizarre? It's because something has shifted in our generation. It's not something that really matters. But it's something that when you're in the Hoover mode, can. And we can hold on to things that we shouldn't and actually create oppressions for the people around us that are like, so I need to dress like what? To come to Ellerslie? And you're looking around going, is that normal? That seems religious. And in a strange way, you would be right. It's an unnecessary burden to put on someone's shoulders that does not actually help them anymore the way it used to. There are perceptions, there are cultural phenomenons that take place that actually God will use. Like 1 Corinthians 11, when we're talking about women with their heads covered, you, some of you have grown up in a culture, a subculture with head coverings. 
and it is part of that culture. So, so to remove it in that culture would be to defraud your father. It would be actually a show of disrespect to your father. But then there's a whole bunch of you that didn't grow up in that. And so for you to put a head covering on, your father would look at you like, what are you doing? And it has to do with the culture you're in of how you show respect and how you show honor and how you show love. So the genes, trying to find that balance between old values and new times. And I, I think you guys note that we do allow genes. In fact, all of Nathan, uh, Philip, and I cherish the fact that we can wear jeans. I don't even know. I mean, I think I have like two pairs of slacks now. I used to have like, you know, 15 pairs of slacks and like two jeans because I didn't get a chance to ever wear my jeans. Now it's like I have 15 jeans and two slacks. It's just flipped it around. How do we hold on to the ancient paths and sing a new song? Doesn't that sound contradictory? If I'm going to walk ancient paths, I need to sing an ancient song. No, you need to walk the ancient path and sing a new song. Dump the old religious deadness overboard. For those of you that are recognizing any religious deadness in you, that are trying to cling to an old system, an old way, an old move of God, I want you to throw that overboard. The same thing I'm choosing to do in my life, and I have never thought of myself as a religious guy, ever. But I'm allowing the Spirit of God to go into areas in my life and say, but what about that? Well, I mean, well, why are you poking at that? And yet, I'm okay with it. I want to dump this overboard. I don't want any deadness in my life. But when you throw that old religious deadness overboard, don't replace it with the muddy paws of rebellion. Instead, consider allowing God to stalk you full of his amazing love instead. Religion, rebellion. In the middle, the center line is love. This is what God has called you to. When the cloud moves you forward or it keeps you there, it's to keep you in love or to have you walk forward in love. Destination, Jesus. That's where the ancient path takes you. Listen to this. This is such a fascinating line if you just sort of study it. Always moving forward down the ancient path. See, it's an ancient path, but the way we're supposed to engage in it is always moving forward. We follow the cloud down the ancient path. Destination, Jesus. Not Pharisaicalism, not Sadduceeism. We're not trying to be liberals or known as liberals. We're not trying to be conservatives and known as conservatives. I don't want to be known as a conservative. I don't want to be known as a Christian. I am not seeking to just be right or left. I want to be in the center where Jesus is. I want to speak the language of love to this culture, not the language of conservative politics. If we're going to succeed as the church, we have to dump the religious baggage overboard and not swing into the rebellious camp. We need to learn how to walk as Jesus, who at times would be a rule breaker. But he's going to fulfill the law. He is going to showcase the nature of God in and through his life. Revelation 14.4, these are the ones who follow the lamb, you could say the cloud, wherever he goes. You see, these are those. That's us. Wherever he goes, what, what, what if he goes to jeans? We will follow. So what, what if he doesn't go to jeans? Oh, no, we will follow. We will follow where he leads us. You know, it's funny, you know, I bring up head coverings. There's some of you that should wear a head covering because of your situation. It's actually how you show honor and respect. There's some of you that shouldn't 
wear a head covering because it would be a symbol of dishonor if you started to press that forward and your family environment would be confused and it would become the focal point instead of Jesus. It's an odd thing to know how to assess and address each of our lives, but we're all unique. We're all in a unique theater to reveal Jesus. I remember one missionary came back from, uh, from Cambodia and said, food sacrifice to idols isn't just a cultural thing from the Bible. It's a very real issue for the church in Cambodia. It's like, oh, that's weird. But the same is true for many of us. Depending on where God sets us, these issues become very real. And you can go religious, you could go rebellious, or you could go Jesus. And for each and every one of us, we want to be marked by the love of Jesus. We're going to finish with this, Romans 5.5. 5. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. If you want to succeed in this, it is not because you just decide one day to not be religious. Or you growl inside and say, I will not re be rebellious anymore. I could just say, good luck with that. This is not something that is done by your power. This is something that is done with agreement with God's power. God's like, I'd like to set you free from your religious propensities, Eric. Like I said, my propensities are not towards the rebellious side. My propensities would be more towards the religious. It's ironic if I'm ever around a religious person, though. I guess I should take it back because I do have the propensity to want to do the opposite from what they're asking me. So it is a very real thing. <laughs> so it's just that we all hate religion. That's, it's an interesting thing. There's no, I doubt there's any one of us in here that's like, oh, I just love that oppressive religious spirit. It's just a really fun thing to be under. But, you know, if you haven't spent any time in the free-for-all liberal category where you lose all structure and all standard it's just as oppressive because you lose your moorings, you lose a fence, and it makes you feel so insecure and so vulnerable. You see, the devil wants to lead us away from that which brings us wholeness and life. And the secret is you must be a recipient of his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And what he's going to bring with him is the love of Jesus. So that you, with that love of Jesus, when that family is moving down that sidewalk towards you, and you have your family that's taken up and hogging up the sidewalk, it doesn't mean that your family shouldn't defer, but how I am going to address my family is with love. Now, you could say, what would that look like? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I've spent more time thinking about the fact that I did it wrong than the fact of what I should have done in that moment. Hey, guys, you know what? There's a family that's coming at us very quickly. And because we love them and we are the family that shows Jesus, how about we move out of the way? Now, some of, some of you are like, did you have time for this? No, that's the problem. This is all happening so quickly. I mean, what am I supposed to do? However, there is a loving way. And I, here's my decision. My decision, and I want my family to know, this is what I've told them even. If I have to offend that family walking down the sidewalk so that I can make sure I preserve you guys, I'm going to do that because I'm going to choose you guys over my rule. And that's my decision, even though I tell you what, I am a disciplined rule keeper. And so I have my code of honor. I have the way that I choose to live. And I have to make sure that Jesus is greater than that. I remember Reap a Cheap with his uh, tail cut off. And one of the questions I think that Aslan was asking Reap a Cheap is, you know, is this for your honor 
You know, what, why, why do you want that tail back? And I remember even hearing that, that it's like, I value my honor so high that I will actually step on things I love. That ought not to be. And so I want my tail back if I'm reaper cheap. I want to be honorable, but as Christ would have me be honorable, which is with love. Father, this is something that you must do in us. And as we begin this semester, I pray that you would set out to root out that religious spirit in all of us. But you would also do the same with that rebellion. Lord, that we would be set free to be lovers. Lovers of Jesus and lovers of others. Lovers of truth. Lord, that we would love to follow that cloud. And even when it inconveniences us by either moving when we don't want to move or to where we don't want to move towards, or it keeps us where we're at and we have a season of waiting. Lord, I pray that we would delight and we would rejoice and we would cherish your ways as higher than ours. That you know how to do this well. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.